enjoying days off and, and all that comes with that. Uh, my family and I had the privilege of being able to go to Houston to visit my, my parents along with my in-laws and figured out while we were there that the last time that we were all together like that was when Antoinette and I actually got married at our wedding. Um, and so that was, that was a fun time and uh, enjoyed that. And um, it was fun watching people's social media and the different things as, as they posted pictures of all your different things that you did. That was, that was fun. I'm glad that we can enjoy all those things to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning. 1 through 17. Let's read together. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you at that time to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's read together. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed it to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So we started chapter 2 last week and we just dealt with the first seven verses and really what we looked at is this introduction that we have to this new 
main character in the story, our last main character in the story, Boaz. Boaz, in him is strength, right? And, and we're going to find out just how strong this man is, not only in his worthiness, as the text says, as being a wealthy landowner, but also in his worthiness as a man of God. As we saw last week, even as he entered the field where his workers were, he didn't immediately ask for a timesheet. He didn't immediately ask for an assessment of all the different sheaves been gathered. He greets them in the name of the Lord, blesses them, in the name of the Lord. And we see them respond in kind, which shows us that there was a rhythm and a pattern here with this man who, who even as he came into the workplace, was, was looking to a higher calling and a higher manner of living than simply the work that needed to be done. Right off the bat, there's a challenge to each of us, right, in our own workplaces, that we would have eyes that look to... Uh, the things above and not only to earthly things. Amen? And so we look and we saw Boaz and we said, let's, let's take a little detour here and let's see how much we can learn about this man by looking at his mother. And who was Boaz's mother? It was Rahab, the harlot from Jericho. And so we took time last week to look at the story of Rahab and see where Boaz had come from and how, just briefly, this relationship with his mother, who also was a foreigner, who also was a pagan woman from a pagan land, was in a sense redeemed by his father and brought into the tribe of Judah as a foreign woman who had been saved by God. We also saw, like Ruth, this very profound profession and confession of faith and we saw that, that what we saw in the text in Joshua about Rahab, the rest of the Bible in the New Testament commentated on and showed us that what looked like maybe a profession, maybe a confession of faith, truly was a confession of true faith in the true God as Rahab was recorded in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 when God, by the Spirit, says, by faith, Rahab saved the spies. And so we looked at that, and we looked at James 2, 14 through 26. And I want us to go there and, and look again at James 2, 14 through 26, and just hear these words briefly again from the apostle as he writes to the church. Because we briefly touched on this last week, and I want us to hear this again. In James 2, verse 14 through 26, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown 
you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we looked at this and we said, whoa, 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 hang on a minute, wait a minute. Verse 24 is about to send us into the stratosphere. Why? Because it literally just said that man, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we had to deal with that text. Why? Because we as a congregation, as a people, proudly, boldly stand and say that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's by faith alone. So what do we do with this? And we had to look at how what is being described here by James in James chapter 2 is not in conflict. I repeat, it's not in conflict with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Why? Because what James is referring to is the kind of justification that we earn from one another by our works. James is saying, you say you have faith, but we cannot say that that is true faith until you show us by your works that it is. And so before God, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Boom, right then and there, immediately justified by faith. But to us who read the Old Testament, how was Abraham justified to us? How do we know that Abraham had faith? In God. Well, we, we keep reading the story and we find out that his faith that saved him was not alone, but it was joined by works. Amen? Is that not how in the text we see Abraham was justified by God? We see it because of his works. And, and I love, again, I can't help but go here again. Abraham was the given, right? Like, that's the go-to choice. And then the next person that James chooses to go to is Rahab. And he shows how that Rahab also was justified by works. Many reasons, perhaps, why James chose to do this. Remember, James was leading the church in Jerusalem. James was the one heading up the council in Jerusalem when Paul had to go and submit Titus to them. Is it not interesting that James chooses a Gentile who was grafted into Israel as another person to show someone who is justified by God, by faith, but justified to us by her works. This is important for us to understand. It's important for us to remember that Scripture must interpret Scripture and we must not read one individual Scripture alone by itself and run off because we could stop there today, go out the door and say, wait a minute, sorry guys, we messed up. Man is not saved by faith alone. 
and we would be wrong. But this scripture is still true. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone when contextually we understand that the justification that James is looking for is one between individual people. And so this is important. Why? Because not only does this apply to Rahab, as we looked at last week, but what we're going to see throughout the rest of chapter 2 is how that Boaz and Ruth were justified to us and to those around them by their works. And really what we see here in chapter 2, this is important because in this chapter, we are going to have a contrast displayed to us regarding two of our major themes. In chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 1, we saw our first major theme. And I'm going to remind you what our five major themes are for the book of Ruth as we go through it. But we saw our first major theme, which was the cost of disobedience. The cost of disobedience. Our five major themes in the book of Ruth as we go through it. Number one is going to be a theme of emptiness to fullness. Of emptiness to fullness. Secondly, the cost of disobedience. Thirdly, God's sovereignty. As we've watched already, God's sovereign and providential hand. Uh, even last week, as we saw, Ruth uh, happened to go into the field that belonged to Boaz. Just happened to be there. Um, we can look at that and we can say, okay, as, it, as the story unfolds and as it appears to her, yeah, it was happenstance. But as we look back at the rest of the story, we see this was God's sovereign and providential hand. Fourth is the theme of faithful living. Faithful living. And lastly, our ultimate theme in the book of Ruth is, is the theme of redemption, which is what this whole story is about. But what we're going to see displayed for us in chapter 2 is a contrast between the cost of disobedience that we see in chapter 1 and the faithful living that we see in chapter 2 with Ruth and Boaz. And so we look at, at James chapter 2. I want to take you uh, to another portion of Scripture in the New Testament. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, because I believe that this really plays hand in hand with uh, what we're talking about with being justified by our works. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11... Paul talks about true repentance. Remember that justification, we talk about faith in God. That, that faith comes, and what comes with that faith is true repentance, right? Yes? Amen. Yes, it does. Absolutely, it must. And so, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see a similar thing happening. Though this is not specifically speaking to a justification in the sense of this person has faith or doesn't have faith ultimately, though it can lead to an understanding more readily of that. But here Paul is talking about someone who is assumed to be justified before God already, but needs to walk in godly grief and repentance because of their manner of living. And listen to what Paul says. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11, 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Listen to this last line. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul's saying that when we find ourselves in a place where our sin has been made known to us. Now this could mean in terms of our life. We come to a place where by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and his presentation to us of Christ, we become made aware of our sin and ultimately in faith repent and are justified by God, and that's what we call as being saved, right? Born again, justified. But the justified person will at times still battle the indwelling presence of sin in their lives. And as that sin is revealed to us, just like it was originally, we're called to live in the same manner of confession and repentance that began this whole journey for us in the first place. And so when our sin is uncovered to us, what must we do? Paul says that that we should have a godly grief over our sin. We we talked about this several weeks ago when we had a one-off sermon about true repentance. We went to this text, but it's good for us to revisit this again and be reminded that when God in His love, His mercy, and His grace uncovers our sin that our call is to have godly grief over that sin, and then that should lead us in what he says is eagerness to clear ourselves, indignation and fear, longing, zeal. Punishment there is really like self-discipline. And ultimately, at every point, to prove ourselves innocent in the matter. Right? And Paul says that these people he's writing to, they've done this. They've displayed this. And so when we look at someone whose sin has been uncovered, and whether it's in a church discipline issue, uh, formally or informally between brothers and sisters, as we speak the truth in love to one another and, and, and show how our sin has been uncovered, this is what Scripture calls us to. And what do we see with this woman, this pagan woman, this Moabitess woman who comes into Israel having made this confession, this beautiful, profound confession of faith, what do we see her immediately doing? She's getting stuck in. I mean, right off the bat. She doesn't wait around. She doesn't sit back and, and, and wait for someone to come and, and tell her what to do, but we can see in her eagerness. We can see in her zeal and longing and self-discipline. And what does she do? She proves herself innocent, and so much so that in the text this morning, we see Boaz proclaim something over her that he recognizes that she has sought shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Now that phrase, under the wings, under the shadow, under the wings, is going to be important to us as we continue in this story. But there's a recognition 
from Boaz that looks at Ruth. He looks at her. Can we just deal with the physicality of that? That there is something observable about Ruth and her manner of life that he is able to make a proclamation. And what does he say? Before me, you have been justified by your works. I've heard about your confession of faith, but now I see it in your works, and I say that I believe you have found shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. Amen? And so we see this here with Ruth. We see this this eagerness in her. I mean, right off the bat, listen to what she says in verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field. There's almost like this, almost as if Naomi's kind of holding her back. A little bit. Now, I mean, we don't know. We don't know what's going on. The author doesn't give it. But to hear that, and let, let me go. Let me go. And, and why? What, what is she doing? What, is she just going so that she can get for herself? No, she is going. And she's saying, look, Naomi. Yes, from all accounts, the Lord has dealt bitterly with you. And where you have been abandoned in death by, by husband and sons, where you have been abandoned by my own dear sister-in-law, I'm here. I'm here. Let me go and see with whom I might find favor. We can't help but remember here even uh, the servant of Abraham going to uh, the land that Laban lived in and, and saying, let, let me see if I might find favor, that I might find a wife for your son, right? And he goes and, and, and there's this faith-filled expectancy that God is going to provide a bride for Isaac here And he says, let me go and see in whose eyes I may find favor. Here we see Ruth having that same sort of faith-filled expectancy as she goes, believing. Remember, what was the news that they had received in the fields of Moab? That the Lord had visited his people. The Lord had visited his people. There was a change that had occurred. And so she has this faith-filled expectancy that she can go and find favor in someone's side. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. And she went, set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And listen to what the young man in charge of the, the reapers says. He's, he's telling Boaz about what happened here. And we see Boaz kind of taking notice of, of Ruth. And likely he, 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 he's already heard about her. He's seen her perhaps in the city. We don't know how much time has passed. But he's, he's getting this view of her now as, as she's there. And what does he say? He says that, that she came and has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. And in the original text... The, the manner of this phrase that, the, that the, the, the man in charge of the reaper uses is, is basically that Ruth has taken up residence here. That the field has become her home. 
and, and, and that, that she's taken up residence here in this field. And, and what is that doing? It's, it's proclaiming the, the, the excellencies of this woman who is applying herself to this work so that she might provide for her family. Interestingly, in the Jewish canon, uh, the book of Ruth is actually ordered after the books of wisdom. And remember that Proverbs ends with this picture of an industrious woman in Proverbs 31. And many Jewish scholars and commentators will say that there was actually purpose in giving this picture of Ruth after the books of wisdom because it was like this was a virtuous and industrious woman, a Proverbs 31 woman. I have to say to the, to the young men in the room this morning, as the Lord sees fit to bring you into a season and stage of life where the opposite sex begins to attract your attention more, may your eyes find women like Ruth, industrious and virtuous women, not those who are uh, idling their lives away, but rather have applied themselves faithfully that, that, that are a blessing to the home of their mother and their father, who are a blessing to the community of faith, may your eyes find those women. And likewise, young woman, may your eyes find young men like Boaz, who faithfully attend the field and don't sit back in laziness, allowing others to carry on with the work, but who get stuck in and, and, and are godly men who, who don't just have their minds set on earthly things, but have their minds set on things above. There's a beautiful picture of that kind of an attraction here in the story of Ruth and Boaz because what's about to happen, what we are seeing happen here as Boaz is like, whose young woman is she? Tell me a little bit more about her is the very beginning embers of romance that God himself will fan into a beautiful flame. And so we look here and we see that there's this, this eagerness in Ruth, this applying of herself to, to this work, not, not just work for work's sake, but so that she might care for and provide for her mother-in-law and bring this food back home. And what do we find? We, we find an answer to her hopeful and faith-filled expectation. She leaves in the morning saying, let me go that I may perhaps find favor in someone's sight. And, and what happens? She, she does. She finds favor in the eyes of Boaz. Listen to what happens. He, he says to her himself, 
he goes up to her. He hears this story about her. And then we see him just kind of coming over near her and, and speaking to her. And notice that he, he refers to her extremely um, affectionately, but in a very appropriate way. It's not like, how are you doing? Right? Like it, it, he says, now listen, my daughter. And, and, and so we, we begin to get this picture and there'll be another Another uh, thing that Boaz will say to her later that helps us to understand that, that Boaz may not be the youngest uh, uh, rooster in, 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 the, in the pen, right? Like, like he may be a little more advanced in his age and, and he kind of comes to her at first very fatherly and says, listen, my, my daughter. And so there's this very like appropriate sort of approach to her. He says, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. And listen to this. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? This is past tense. He's like, I've, I've already arranged for you. I've already made sure that, that this space for you will, will not simply be a place of toil, but rather will be a place of refuge for you. That you are safe here. That you can go about this great calling that you have and, and you can do it without fear. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And, and, and what does this mean? I mean, it's just recognition of the depravity of man in the nature of our sin, that even though the Lord had visited his people, even though they knew this because he had given them bread, even though we know because of the text that this means that there had been a, perhaps a widespread repentance in the land, Boaz recognizes that not everyone in the land likewise has repented. Not every Lord of the harvest of their own field, walks into the field and says to his workers, uh, greetings in the name of the Lord, right? Peace be with you, shalom. Not every workman's, uh, not every uh, Lord of the harvest workmen respond and say, the Lord bless you, right? What The nature of that being that, that Boaz was such a faithful um, Lord, that, that his men and, and the women that were under his care enjoyed being under his care. And so we see now that he's extending this care to this foreigner as she comes in the field. And he says, stay here. Why? Because it is here that I know that I can protect you. I don't know why I've got just a burden for the young people in the room this morning, but I can't help but think about as each one of you get to, again, this stage, this season of life where whether because of school or work or marriage, seasons of life, that, that God may take you from this place to another place. It will be vitally important for you to remember where the provision and the protection of the Lord is.
so many young people will, will graduate and they say, parents' religion, my parents did this, but, and they abandon, they abandon the ways in which their parents have raised them. They abandon the ways of the Lord. And I'll tell you exactly what they find every single time. They find exactly what the prodigal son found. They find that as they lived, spend thriftly with their lives, that the very things that they thought would bring them joy and satisfaction leave them depressed, alone, dirty, and without a friend in the world. But remember what the prodigal son remembered. Remember what likely Naomi, the prodigal daughter, remembered. That even the servants in my father's house are well provided for. And return, 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 return. And find the provision, the safety, the protection that can be found only in the places where the Lord reigns. Amen? We, we see Boaz extending this care to Ruth and saying, stay here because here is where I can protect you. But it goes further than that, doesn't it? It goes further than that. He says, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I'm like, flash forward a little bit. Let's, let's remember where they're drawing this water from. They're from Bethlehem. And there's a well in Bethlehem. It's the same well that David, when he was thirsty and was near Bethlehem, says to a few of his mighty men, Oh, what I would not do for a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem, and we see these mighty men jump into action and break through the front lines and grab a cup of water from the well in Bethlehem and somehow bring it back. I can't even walk up the stairs with a cup of tea for my wife without spilling it. Somehow these men bring back a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem to David and they offer it to him. And what does David do? He takes it. And he pours it out as a drink offering to the Lord. And he said, may I not drink this that has cost so much. Right? But that's, that's not all. Who else would have drunk from this well? For was not our Lord born in Bethlehem? How sweet are the waters from Bethlehem. And here we see Boaz providing for Ruth as he says, even what the young men have drawn for themselves, carried for themselves, you go and drink without excuse, for I have provided. Listen to what she says. She, she sees the answer to her prayer. Why? She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me. You see, what's really beginning to happen is we're starting to begin to see a glimmer 
of that theme of redemption coming through in how already Boaz, at this point, very fatherly, very pastorally, is providing for Ruth. We get to begin to get a picture of what a redeemer is in Boaz because Boaz is truly the Lord of the harvest. Now, I've, I've said that a couple of times. Have you heard that before, the Lord of the harvest? Where, where have you heard that before? Well, hopefully, <laughs> it was in something that Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9, 35 through 36, and it's interesting here as Matthew is writing his gospel account all through chapter 9, Matthew is giving us testimony after testimony after testimony of Jesus healing one person after another, one person after another. And then all of a sudden, right here at the end of chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then you go to chapter 10, and immediately we see Jesus, Matthew relating how that Jesus not only called the 12 disciples, but then sends them out. Which is Matthew saying what? The Lord of the harvest that Jesus was telling the disciples to pray to was Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. This is interesting. John Gill in his commentary in Ruth references some secular historical voices. He references Pliny. And he says that Pliny related a saying of the ancients when they said that the eye of the master is the most fruitful thing in the field. The eye of the master is the most fruitful thing in the field. Aristotle uh, also said that there was a time when a question was put to a Persian, what fattened the horse most? And the answer was that the eye of the master fattened the horse most. And then he also related this African proverb, which was almost like a, a catechism question for young men. And the question is, what is the best dung or fertilizer for the land? And the answer on the lips of young African boys who are being trained is that the best dung or fertilizer for the land is the steps of the master. The steps of the master. What I want us to see this morning is how we look at Boaz 
and we see this man who truly is in this moment the Lord of his harvest and his field. And what do we see? We see a picture of what a, a true Lord of the harvest should be. Not only caring for those who are working for him, but also allowing his care to extend to the foreigner and to the person who is coming in. Providing above and beyond because it went beyond the well in the water. We see then as the day comes to break for them to, to rest and to partake and be uh, uh, rejuvenated by sustenance, by food. We see Boaz calling Ruth to come and sit with him, which was a place of great honor. And though she was poor and was there to literally get food, not only to sell, but also to take home to provide for Naomi, likely she wasn't bringing a sack lunch along. Boaz not only says, come and sit here in this place of honor, but what do we see Boaz do? He says, come and take, take bread and wine without money. Come and sit and dip the bread in the wine with me. What, what are we seeing here? We're seeing in a very shadowy way a reflection in this Lord of His harvest. We're seeing a reflection, a shadowy reflection of the true Lord of the harvest. We're seeing a picture of Christ. And when we read the words that Naomi says, who am I that you should take notice of me? We should be rightly led in a similar worshipful expression to our Redeemer and Lord of the harvest. Who are we? David explicitly says it to the Lord. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take notice of him? What do we call this? What did Ruth call it? Here in the ESV it says favor, but in the older translations it makes it a little more explicit when she says, why have I found grace in your eyes? Why have I found grace in your eyes? What is the result of this grace? Abundant provision, supreme care, and mercy mixed with grace. Why? Because mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve in a negative way. But grace is when we get what we don't deserve in a positive way. And we see here abundant provision, supreme care, mercy, and grace. And church, is this not what we have received in an even greater way from Christ? Can we just be reminded of it this morning? Colossians chapter 1 and 2. Colossians 1, 23 through 26. I encourage you to 
turn there. We'll end here in these passages this morning. Paul reminding the church of the gospel. He talks to them about Christ and then he says in chapter 1 verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And here we can't help but even remember when he says alienated, this language from Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, talking about the Gentiles who, who were aliens. What does he say? He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us. That was Ruth. And what do we see? We see that even from that place of alienation, (coughs) even from that place of hostility, Colossians 1 verse 22, Paul exalts Christ and causes our eyes to be lifted to Jesus. And what does he remind us of? He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is this not what Boaz was seeking to do in providing protection and care for Ruth? That that he would be able to present her back to Naomi at the end of the day, unscathed, unhurt, um, unscandalized, And in an even greater way, Christ is the one who is protecting his own, protecting his people, and doing something spiritually now. Notice that he says, has now reconciled. It's a finished work, church. It is a spiritually finished work. But let me tell you how that God will justify himself to you. By his works of preserving you through this life, even in the midst of the presence and the sometimes power of sin in our lives. Yes, the penalty of sin has been dealt with. It's done. But God himself, by his spirit, through His Word, through the care of His church, through the care of His members, will bring you to the end. And God will stand justified before men as by His works He will show that He was faithful to finish the work that He started in us. Amen? He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And if we carried on reading, we would understand that when Paul says, if indeed you continue, his absolute conviction is that they will, because God himself will persevere them to the end. And then look at chapter 2, just probably on the next page 
over, verses 6 through 15, we have this call where Paul tells us, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Can you not hear in these words Boaz when he's saying, don't go to another field. Don't go somewhere else where I can't protect you. Here Christ is here and he's calling us, stay where I have brought you and let me care for you for it is here under my care that protection And provision remains. Don't let anyone carry you away. For in him, Paul says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is the Lord of the harvest. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And here it is, verse 13. And you who were dead. We're going to read in the book of Ruth how the people look at the work of God through the redemption of Ruth by Boaz and the birthing of a son, they will say that God has brought life from death. What they didn't understand is what they were only figuratively speaking of. It was simply a manner of speaking for them. For us is a spiritual reality that God in Christ has literally brought the dead to life in us. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Why? Because as we read in Matthew chapter 9, he had compassion upon a people who were like a sheep without a shepherd and he stretched out his arms that he might fulfill his longing as he looked upon Jerusalem and said, how long have I Long to gather you under my wings. And we, church, we are here today because we have found shelter under the shadow of the Almighty in Christ, who is our Lord of the harvest. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, I thank you for the encouragement that we find this morning by looking 
at this picture of Boaz, a shadowy reflection of our true and better Lord of the harvest. And God, I pray that even right now, you would help us by your Spirit to take an inventory of our lives. To rightfully reflect and to see how great your redemption, how great your provision, how great your protection of us has been. And God, may you cause that worshipful reflection and expression from Ruth and from her great-grandson David rise up in our hearts so that you might answer it at your table this morning. God, who am I? Who am I that you are mindful of me? And as our hearts express that question to you, God, may we immediately hear your invitation to come and take of the bread and of the wine and understand that the reason you're mindful of us is because you looked at us and you said, mine. May we this morning, God, hear the divine mine as we come to the table. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning that you have called to yourself, that you have said, mine, and they have not yet responded to that call, God, work a miracle this morning of bringing the dead to life and bringing true faith and repentance and justify them in this moment this morning. And may we have the great privilege and honor of watching that justification be lived out as they eagerly apply themselves so that they might prove themselves now because of the blood of Christ alone, innocent, holy, and blameless. Do this work, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.